Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, I'm joined by Professor Robert Plowman, the author of a new book called Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. Now, Professor Plowman, we all know that DNA makes us to a certain extent who we are. Your book seems to make the case that it has far, far more wide-reaching effects on us than are commonly thought. A lot of the things that we take to be environmental are actually written in our genes. And your your role is a behavioural geneticist. Can you explain a bit what, what that means? Okay, well, behavioural geneticist this means you're studying the genetics of behaviour, but specifically individual differences, why some people are schizophrenic, others aren't, why we differ in personality and learning ability, mental health and illness. So we're studying differences, and we're looking at the 1% of our 3 billion base pairs of DNA that differ to say, do those make a difference? It's between the, individuals. Between individuals, whereas the 99% is what makes us human. And so it's all important in terms of the contribution to who we are, but it's really important to emphasize we're describing differences that exist in a population, why some kids are reading disabled and others aren't, and asking the extent to which DNA accounts for those differences. And what we've learned during my 45 years of research in this area is that the inherited DNA differences account for a lot more of the differences than we used to think. When I was in graduate school, we used to think that number was zero. You know, when I was in graduate school, it was dangerous professionally and sometimes personally to even talk about genetic influence. It sounds like an exaggeration now, but it really wasn't. We were taught schizophrenia was caused by what your mother did to you in the first three years of life. Totally environmentalistic. We are what we learn. So this is quite a transformation. In a number of my interviews now, people are saying, well, yeah, of course, everybody knows genetics is important. Well, we've done surveys, and people underestimate the power of genetics by about 50%. So weight, for example, is about 70%. Heritable. 70% of the differences between people can be explained by DNA differences, where if you ask people, on average, they'd say it's about 30%. I mean, this concept of heritability is one that maybe Mm. bears unpacking a little bit, because I think people have often quite muddled ideas, don't they, about how genes actually work on us. So that's exactly right. Heritability is a descriptive statistic of a particular population. It's not like a constant like the speed of light, It's not deterministic like single gene disorders, you know, where if you have a gene for Huntington's, you'll die from Huntington's disease unless something else kills you first. That's the way we learn about genetics from Mendel, you know, single genes that have these deterministic hardwired effects. But not just behavior, but all of medicine, complex traits and common disorders like cardiovascular disease or the physiological ingredient there is a blood pressure or, you know, physiological measures, they're all very substantially influenced by genetic differences between people. But what we've learned in the last few years, it's not, certainly not one gene, 10 genes, 100 genes. We're talking about thousands of DNA differences of very, very small effect. And that means it's going to be very difficult to work out the gene-brain behavior pathways. But for me, and for many medical people, It's the ability to put those tiny differences together in what we call a polygenic score to predict behavior or medical disorders without knowing anything about what goes on in between. So that's the big thing now is we can use DNA to predict heritability. 
And that happens over a population, does it? I mean, you have to have a presumably widespread of samples, do you, for that to To find those small effects, you need huge samples, hundreds of thousands, if not a million people, because you need the power to pick up these very tiny effects reliably. And can you talk a bit about the populations, the samples that you were using to sort of strip out, if you like, environmental factors or to, to control for them? Yeah. The studies that, it's not just my studies, but studies around the world are primarily European, North American, Australia, some in Southeast Asia, but they're mostly European samples. And so the point there is... These You're using twins, aren't you? Twins and adoptees, but the big thing now is you can use DNA itself to estimate heritability with unrelated people. It's called SNP heritability. SNP is a single nucleotide polymorphism, so there's 10 million of those among the 3 billion base pairs of DNA that differ between us. And so you can actually estimate heritability using DNA alone now with unrelated individuals. I could explain how we do that, but I think the important point is it's not just reliant on one method, but very different methods, each of which have their own problems, but they converge on the conclusion that inherited DNA differences account for a lot of the differences between people across the board. And as you've described, I mean, there are some things that sort of, you know, I mean, one could maybe say, okay, certain psychological disorders, you could see how they might have a some polygenic indicator behind them. But you've said that you can show correlations between, you know, your the heritability of things like getting divorced or how much television you watch or even what television you watch, mm-hmm. which is very, very counterintuitive. I mean, did you sort of have to go back and double check your results? Is the data sort of so strong that it it supports this stuff unequivocally. No, actually, I was surprised in the 80s when we first started finding this that, you know, there are hundreds of environmental measures used in psychology, like life events is a big one, parenting, you know, how parents are the authoritarian or how loving they are, that sort of thing. Hundreds of these measures, and they're environmental measures. So they can't show genetic influence because they don't have DNA. But it comes from our old way of thinking about the environment. The environment's what happens to us. And that comes out of the old learning theory, stimulus-response theory, where what the environment is, it's like you've got a rat in a cage and you shock it or you starve it. It definitely has nothing to do with that rat. I mean, you know, they passively receive the environment. But you think about what we study and call the environment in psychology, in all the social sciences. It's things like life events. And the big items there are having financial problems, getting into conflicts with people, losing your job. And, you know, if you think about it for a minute, you say, well, actually, that isn't the environment out there, independent of us. We contribute to that. And it might be a little harder to swallow this one, but that's also true of divorce. Does divorce just happen to us? You know, some people get divorced more than other people. What is that? And, and we know what some of the personality factors are that are involved. But the most shocking thing is, you know, the best predictor of whether you get divorced is whether your parents were divorced. And this is a great example because environmentalists had no trouble with that, right? You know, yeah, you psychologists have, drew one very obvious conclusion from that. That's right, yeah. yeah, that it's environmental and you, you have bad role models for stable relationships and, you know, your identity formation is messed up. Turns out it's all genetic. 
That prediction from parents to offspring. All genetic? I mean, that's a very categorical thing to say. Yeah, well, it's just empirical, it's just statistical. In Sweden, there's been an adoption study of two million families where in Sweden, all the records are open, like adoption records. There's no phony birth certificates as there are in many countries. So you're able to say, kids adopted at birth, do they resent, if their adoptive parents get divorced, are they more likely to get divorced? No. If their birth parents, who they didn't see after the hospital in the first week of life, get divorced later in life, that's the same risk for them being divorced, even though they never shared family environment with those biological relatives. And is the correlation exact? I mean, there's no... No, no, it's a weak correlation. The prediction of you getting divorced from your parents getting divorced, you know, it's it's just a a modest sort of prediction, even though it's the best predictor we have. it's the same in the adopted population as it is in the... That's right. Yes, that is right. Yeah. So it's a great example, though, of a new way of thinking about the environment. It isn't this passive model that the environment is what happens to us, but rather we create and select and modify our environments in part based on our genetic propensities. Well, this is we what you create the environment. The nature of nurture. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And, that was a title and, of paper, yeah. and I think that's profound. In terms of education, for example, you know, the word instruction means to shove it in, basically, instuere, and education means you bring it out. And what this is suggesting is that we ought to be thinking more about bringing it out. We're not shoving a national curriculum into kids. We're actually giving them the opportunity to learn things. And there are always going to be individual differences in that. And those individual differences in learning are largely genetic. And then as we get rid of the environmental disparities, it'll be increasingly due to genetics. So it's just a new way of thinking about the environment, which is, in a way, education as well. One of the things that I think for you know, a layperson like myself, that's tricky to get around is we think, okay, you're able to provide very hard data about, you know, the degree of correlation between, say, a particular, you know, genetic marker and height, because, you know, height is something you can measure, or whether or not you've been divorced is something you can measure. But you also talk about psychological and behavioral traits, which feel like, you know, if you like, soft science, because they're, they're much more subjective, they're much more variable. I mean, is it possible to be as sort of crisp with your conclusions when the metrics for what you're measuring are as you know fuzzy as the psychological metrics we have i mean for instance Mm -hmm. you you talk about the fact that you know the psychological and psychiatric establishment regards psychiatric illness in a kind of binary way that you've either got schizophrenia or you haven't you've Mm -hmm. got clinical depression or you haven't and you say actually that's not even a reasonable reflection of Thing. So that suggests that your, your data gathering itself is going to be kind of fuzzy at that end of the process. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of points there. That, that latter one is one that I'm really keen on, the issue of diagnoses versus dimensions. And, but that's quite separate from where you started, which is the difficulty of measuring psychological constructs. And you know, we often say psychology is hard in a way, you know, it's much more difficult to measure these things. But as a result, psychologists have paid much more attention to measurement issues. And so, uh, like issues of reliability and validity. So, for example, tests of learning ability are among the more robust measures we have. Some of these physiological medical measures, blood pressure, it's very, very difficult to measure. It's not very reliable. It's so dynamic, it changes whether you stand up or sit down. So in a way, we have kind of a bias against behavioral measures. Cognitive ability can be measured more reliably, and it's more stable over the lifespan than many other things, like weight, for example. 
So it's not a constant at all. But I think just to say, well, you can't measure these things, therefore we can't do good science on them, is probably wrong. And even for things like personality questionnaires, which are just self-report, or you could have your friends rate you, or teachers or parents rate you, you know, it still is pretty much perception, isn't it? But nonetheless, those perceptions are stable over a long period of time. They predict other things, like they predict job performance and and even educational achievement. So they're not nothing, and they are what they are. That's what we measure. So it's still interesting for me to say, well, let's ask if there's genetic influence, just like we did with these environmental measures, which couldn't possibly show genetic influence. But what you find is, on average, about 25% of the differences on these so-called environmental measures that we use in psychology show genetic influence. And that's where I was getting to with that. You know, it's, it, once you understand that, it's not so surprising because you create your environment. It's not as if the environment, like life events or even divorce, have nothing to do with you. They don't just happen to you. You're involved in whether they happen or not. Do the tendencies of your findings consign Freud and his disciples to the dustbin for all time, do you think? Well, they've been consigned to the dustbin for about 50 years. There's no science done on Freud or Jung or these armchair philosopher, you know, they weren't collecting empirical data, they collected anecdotes. So Karl Popper uses Freud as an example of the sins against the first commandment of science, that is... False liability. Exactly yeah. right. You can't falsify Freud because it's just anecdotal, and it's whether you believe Freud or not. Yeah, but if you believe him, it does seem to work to some extent. I mean, we have a huge industry, and I don't know how you'll value it or, or otherwise, that believes that a talking cure can help with mental distress or even, you know, quite severe psychological disorders. Do you think that's a sort of placebo effect or...? No, not at all. But the talking cure isn't really Freud. Freud is a very specific set of hypotheses about early childhood development. It's all what your mother did to you in the first few years of life. Talking cures, uh, cognitive behavior therapy is a talking cure in a way, isn't it? It's, you know, it's very valuable. So you can find genetic influence on things, and that doesn't mean you can't alleviate those problems. I think curing, Through environmental. Through environmental mechanisms, yeah. It doesn't mean only drugs are going to work if it's genetic. The causes and cures aren't necessarily related. But it just seems sensible to know the great extent to which genetics is important. Because in terms of therapies, the exciting thing now is a treatment by genotype interaction. People, you know, like with methylphenidate and ADHD, hyperactive kids, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, in the States, if you get that diagnosis, you almost automatically get an amphetamine as a treatment, a methylphenidate, like Ritalin. And it's coming more and more to the UK, and there's quite a battle about it now. But what if you could say, these kids with a high genetic risk, which we can assess merely with DNA, we don't need any other information, these kids will profit from methylphenidate. These others won't, so why would you give it to them if they're not going to profit? Or even more, here's a group that will actually be impaired as a result of being given these amphetamines. Can I clarify that? When you say here's a group that's going to benefit from the methylphenidate here, you know, genetically, we can identify them. Do you mean that there will be one group of children who have ADHD genetically and one group who don't, or is it simply a more reliable way of diagnosing ADHD in the first place? Yes. Well, this gets in the point you raised earlier about diagnoses versus dimensions. These polygenic scores that involve summing thousands of DNA differences, weighting them by how well they predict, say, 
what we call ADHD, these polygenic scores are perfectly normally distributed like a bell-shaped curve. There's no cutoff at which you could say, oh, these kids are hyperactive. There are kids with problems, certainly, and the dimension has a very high risk end to it. But to say that there's a, a, a disorder it doesn't make any sense. It's all quantitative. It's, it's a matter of more or less rather than either or. So we all have lots of the genes for ADHD. It's just a question of how many you have. And if you're way out there, you'll be at much greater risk. So like schizophrenia, perfectly normally distributed, you take the top 10% of this polygenic score distribution, top decile, top 10%, they're at a 15-fold greater risk of being diagnosed as schizophrenic. Now, I don't accept the diagnosis. I think it's a dumb way to think about it, you know, that we should be thinking, we all have schizophrenia genes, it's a question of how many we have. And if, then, if there's no disorder, there's no cure, because there is no disorder to cure. It's a matter of alleviating symptoms. And that's where a lot of that research is going now. CBT, we mentioned before, is probably the biggest advance now in terms of treating schizophrenia. Just show people how to act and how to respond and so that they function better in society rather than drugging them down so that their symptoms aren't so florid, you know? So this is really revolutionizing clinical psychology. And in a way, because you can predict. That's the thing that hasn't quite happened yet, but that's the next big thing. Well, early intervention. You can prevent problems before they occur, which is where all of medicine's trying to go. You know, we can do a pretty good job now with DNA of predicting cardiovascular risk. And so it's a great example because if you could say you're at really high cardiovascular risk, the usual dictum, eat well, exercise, you know, stay active, it'll mean more to you because, you know... It, we're not going to have a totalitarian government that makes you do those things. But to say, you know, it, this is more important, this message for you, because if you don't do these things, you're at like a 15-fold greater risk for having a heart attack. So that's why I, I'll just get it in now. Maybe we'll talk about it later. But that's why I think it's so important we have the NHS here. I really think we're going to have these polygenic scores on the NHS because all you got to do is genotype someone once, and you'll do it for medical disorders. And then if we knew, for example, I mean, they'll do it for cardiovascular disease, maybe for obesity, but then what about alcoholism? You know, Francis Collins, who's the head of the National Institutes of Health in the United States and was the director of the Human Genome Project, he says in a few years we're going to look back and say it was incredibly unethical that we weren't getting this DNA data on people, yeah. just for prevention. Although, you know, you raise the NHS. I mean, the obvious sort of other side of it politically is... In a society like the US, where you have privatized healthcare, you've, you know, health insurance, will these polygenic scores not be something that can, you know, people be anxious that, you know, their health insurance would be unaffordable if they found to say have a high polygenic score for this or that yeah. or the other? How would you safeguard against that? I don't that? see how it's going to work with a money based, insurance based sort of medical system. Because if they know you're at high genetic risk for cardiovascular disease, they can't spread that risk out over a whole population. They've got to eat it. So if there's any way they can get out of insuring you, it would be tremendously to their advantage commercially. So I don't see how it's going to work in terms of that sort of system. But it's happening, so they're going to have to deal with it. Would it be something you think, I mean, I'm, you know, we're straying off, off the hard science, but 
would your apologetic school be something that, that would be private to you? I mean, would that be a way of managing it? Well, and that's, you might take decisions based on it. Yeah, and you know, there are these thousands of single gene disorders. They, it, they're necessary and sufficient for the development of the disorder. So that's been legislated already in terms of insurance companies can't use that information to discriminate against you. But it doesn't quite work because what if you went to 23andMe, a direct-to-consumer company, and you found out you're at high cardiovascular risk? So you could get yourself insured for that risk, and if the insurance company didn't know about that, it would sort of be unfair to them in a way. You know? and, so, and, and also, if you had a problem, they would send out investigators, they'd find and out... Pre-existing conditions you know, and stuff like that. Pre-existing condition, exactly right. Yeah. So the only way I can... It's one of the huge, I think, pluses in terms of the NHS. We ought to be able to use this as a way of saying, aren't we lucky? We have, at least for the moment, an NHS. Yeah. One of the things that really took me about your book is that you know, quite often in discussions of psychology and you know, human cognition, there seems to be a sort of you know, face-off between, if you like, the straightforward you know, psychologists, the psychological theorists, and the people who say, we do neuroscience, we know how this works. And you seem to actually be able to, you, know, you wallop the first lot for the unscientific assumptions and the second lot also get it because you say that a lot of this stuff about brain localization and intelligence taking place in certain kind of little cantonments in the brain is nonsense and that actually we have general cognitive ability rather than specific ones yeah well any trait we study including these brain traits you know you got to measure things in the brain you know and we do they're all influenced genetically but all genetic influence involves thousands and thousands of tiny DNA differences. And each of those DNA differences don't have a simple path through the brain. They all affect multiple aspects of the brain, which makes sense to me. The brain evolved as a general problem solver. It didn't evolve to be, make it easy work for neuroscientists to trace pathways between genes and to behavior through the brain. So it, it just all makes such sense to me. And so that's why... I mean, I get in trouble for this. I don't want to knock other areas. But, you know, the, the modular approach of neuroscience, which is based on the idea this bit of the brain does that, it lights up when you have this particular task. You know, I just don't see how that's going to make sense when, from a genetic point of view, it's so, we call it pleiotropic, you know, genes have multiple effects, and polygenic. Anything you study is going to be influenced by many, many genes. So do you think the, the sort of, you know, this bit of your brain does this, argument is going to look from 20 years time more like a kind of version of phrenology well there's quite a bit of discussion of that now even i think you know these systems approaches to the brain are maybe a better way to think about it you know rather than looking for these simple pathways or pretending when this bit of the brain lights up with that task you've identified the brain localization of that phenomenon but, you know, it's, it's not my area, and I shouldn't really be taking potshots at it. I'm particularly irritated because I study education, and neuroeducation is kind of the hot thing. So education people are the last bastion of anti-genetic thinking. They just don't want to think about genetics. They love neuroscience, though, because they pretend that the things they're trying to do are based on sound neural principles. No way. I mean, you know, we don't know much at all about these things. But... 
you know, the, one of the latest, one of the gimmicks a couple of years ago was a balance board. So you, you have a ball and you have a board and you try to balance on it. That's going to cure reading disability. Why? Because some neuroscientist says without very little justification, the problem is in the vestibular system, the balance system inside the inner ear. How you could say that? But then all you got to do is buy this balance beam for 25 pounds and, you know, kids can rock on it and have a good time. And it'll often show effects early on. That's called the Hawthorne effect. Anything works initially. But of course, it doesn't work in the long run. But that's the level at which this neuroeducation is going. But again, I'm criticizing other areas. <laughs> and actually, I have a lot of positive things to say about genetics. <laughs> now, one of the you said early on in the book, you describe your investigation. I think it was into TV watching. And you say, I really hesitated to publish this because I thought it was going to be a professional suicide note. You know, you've taken a long time to publish this book. And you've said, I think, in interviews, you know, you were anxious about it. There is a, you know, it's a hugely politically overdetermined issue, isn't it? I mean, it's the sort of third rail you've slightly avoided, which is race in the book. How do you approach the political implications of what you're doing apart from cautiously? Well, that last clause is not nothing, cautiously. <laughs> I mean, to start always by saying there are no necessary policy implications. So I usually give an example. You can have a right-wing set of values and apply it to these, the, showing genetic influence on behavior. You can have a left-wing policy. No necessary policy implications follow. That depends on your values, I think. So that's one way I avoid it. And the other is to say, I'm a scientist. I think these are important scientific findings. They have implications, and they, they have to impact on society and education, even self-understanding. So that's why I wrote the book, because I, I do want to launch this discussion, especially now that the DNA revolution is on us. It's not a matter of saying, you know, in general, abstractly, genetics is important. Saying, I can measure your DNA from the cell you left on your cup that you're drinking, and determine your whole genome and use that to make some pretty strong predictions about behavior. And this is only in the last two or three years. And the power of these approaches is increasing as we recognize that we have to have huge samples to detect these very tiny effects. So I say in the book that by the time people read this, the results will have gotten much stronger. And that's really true, even faster than I thought. So we do need to have a discussion about these issues. And people who know more about the ethical side, the policy side, you know, let them join the conversation. I'm concerned that people know this is happening. It's not like one of these things, yeah, sometime down the line this will have an impact. This is important right now. Four million people have gotten their genomes done by 23andMe. And I think it also, we need to have the DNA literacy to be able to join this conversation. So that's the main reason I wanted to write the book now. Although, as you were alluding to, partly the reason I didn't do it 30 years ago was cowardice. <laughs> do you, I mean, the, you know, as I say, the third rule is race to an extent. Is it axiomatic to you as a scientist that if, say, data demonstrated that as well as coding in certain respects for, you know, epicanthic folds or melanin or, you know, blonde hair, some of your polygenic score within a particular racial population might have an effect on, say, IQ or something like that, which obviously is the bell curve, which is the thing that was hanging over this. Mm -hmm. What would your responsibility as a scientist be if that was the way the data was pointing? 
Well, first of all, I study individual differences, and there's no necessary relationship between the causes of individual differences and the causes of average differences between groups, like you say, race. There could, both within, you know, both populations, it could be highly heritable, a particular trait, like learning ability. Doesn't mean that the average difference between those groups is genetic. So there's some famous examples, you know, by the geneticist Lewontin about that with corn. So it could be prejudice, for example, discrimination that makes for the mean difference between the groups. Secondly, we don't have to address that issue now because we own the populations for which this research has been done are Northern European, yeah. sometimes North American populations. Eventually, that will probably happen, though, that these other groups will demand that they also get the data to give them polygenic scores. But I think I'm just going to duck it, though, by saying it's not what I do. The average difference between groups is small compared to the individual differences within groups. And we can, do, we can understand the individual differences. It's very hard to definitively prove what the cause of an average difference between groups is, even males and females, and certainly classes and certainly racial groups. So it's so politically fraught I think I'm just going to say I don't have to study everything. No. And so I'm going to focus no, on individual differences. Do you, I mean, you know, gender's another issue. And the, I suppose what I would ask is there's a more or less a progressive orthodoxy, which is of a kind of radical constructivism, sort of blank slate idea that the cultural differences between us, well, sorry, sorry, that the gender, gender differences are essentially cultural. Do you think there's any value in that at all, or is that a political convenience? Well, again, that's an average difference between groups. Right. And I study developmental psychopathology where we get the biggest differences between boys and girls, you know, like hyperactivity, maybe five-fold. It just about every problem is greater in boys than in girls, except maybe depression later on in life. But you know, it's interesting, with the genetic tools we have at hand, we can't find any genetic causes of those differences. But as I say, it's much harder to definitively address the cause of an average difference between groups rather than individual differences within each group. So these polygenic scores predict just as well for males as they do for females. So essentially all you can look at at the moment is the individual. That we can do powerfully. We have great, strong methods for doing that. And the average differences between groups, you know, I, I, I know people are quite interested in that, but I think it's a very much more difficult topic to get, that, get a handle on. And it's also so fraught, and, you know, so I'd rather deal yeah, with... of course, where... it's hugely fraught. It's just, it's, you know, to somebody reading your book, they'll think, like, here is somebody saying very definitively, if, if, if they're pointing a finger a certain distance down the road, saying, you know, DNA can really predict really strongly certain things about us. And there's obviously a further portion of road <laughs> that that leads to that that's fraught with all these political anxieties do you think you know as a scientist there's a point at which science might go you know what thus far and no further hmm. well there's a much evidence for that is there i mean scientists will pursue these things and i think that's the reason to have this conversation now i mean if you're particularly concerned about will it be used to study gender differences or ethnic group differences maybe we you know, should talk about that now. It actually goes the other way, though, you know, that minority groups are really keen to be involved in the genetics. Do you know, for the U.S., they don't allow you to study one ethnic group. You have to, if you're going to get a U.S. grant, study all ethnic groups at least proportionate to their size in the sample, unless you're specifically doing something like studying disadvantaged individuals. So 
I think it might go the other way, that minority groups are saying, what about us? I mean, you're not, you can't assume that these polygenic scores that predict cardiovascular disease in Northern Europeans will also predict in all other populations. You know, and in general, they don't predict. I mean, your samples are quite Northern European. Yeah, they? it's all European. Absolutely. And can I ask what's next what, for you? Well, it's to enjoy this, actually. I mean, for 45 years, I've been wanting to get to the point where we can actually have DNA that makes these predictions. And then to study the sorts of things we've always been interested in, but having the precision of a DNA index rather than just this general sort of family risk. So I want to study development. How early do these things develop, for example? Especially gene-environment interplay. Can we find ways in which these genetic propensities interact with environments? Do particular types of educational programs work particularly well for certain kids? But the, the one thing I'm doing... I, we start to stream classes by genome rather than by... Well, we wouldn't assume one size fits all in terms of education. I mean, because it doesn't, you know? And the old model of a teacher standing in front of a classroom of 30 kids, standing and delivering a lecture that bores half of them is over the heads of the other half. I mean, why? Why don't we free teachers up to give special help to kids who needs, need help? Like with math, you know, I, I get such pushback on this from the education community. But, you know, the idea of personalized learning, it just seems like a no-brainer to me. We see it with math, you know, where you, there are these wonderful programs that allow kids to go as far and as fast as they want. Kids who are going more slowly, it's called adaptive learning. It branches out to simpler problems so that they don't fail, you know, and don't get turned off. That's exactly what I mean by personalized learning, and computers are very, very good at that. Then teachers think it's putting them out of business, but I think it ought to put them in business of really educating and helping specific kids who are having problems, much of which is social and behavioral. It isn't really learning problems. You know, they've got to learn to get along and that sort of thing. So I'm really excited about where this will go in terms of education. Oh. I just ask, I'm, you know, I come from a sort of literary background. This is my interest is in books and literature and culture. Is there anything that escapes DNA, anything cultural that you might say, actually, you can't code for a propensity to be good at poetry or have a sort of particular aesthetic eye? Yeah. Or do you think that finally all of that's locked in our genes? Well, I don't know. See, Pinker talks about that in his wonderful book from, what, 15 years ago called The Blank Slate. And he got in the most trouble for the chapter on art, suggesting that that also shows evolutionary influence. That's at the species universal level. He's not talking about individual differences. There are surprisingly few studies of artistic creativity, you know, it's hard to measure for one thing. <laughs> so but, it makes um, depression looking. I'd be amazed if there wasn't some genetic influence on that. But, you know, as you know, you can be, genetics isn't, you said coding, you know, it's not determined Sorry, yeah. or coding, you know, it's just influence. It nudges you in one direction or another. And increasingly, I think the nudges are in terms of appetites as much as aptitudes. You know, we think if it's genetic, it means you've got some wiring in your brain that's different. I don't think it's like that. I think it's much more complex and organismic, you know, that I find kids do what they like to do, and they do that a lot, and they do it better. And I'm sure that's true with art, too. Music, you know, you, you do what you like to do, and because of that, you do better. You know, it's all this kind of correlation. It's this gene-environment correlation. And even if you don't have any talent, you can go pretty far, as we see in the world of art, 
You know, I think most people would agree. Some people yeah. really don't have much talent. They just have good agents. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Plemon, thank you very much indeed. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.